everything else that we do on this planet, we can do better in heaven. Your worship will be much better in heaven. Your praise will be much better in heaven. But there's one thing that you can do here that you can't do in heaven, and that's be God's witness to the peoples around you. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Are you currently going through something difficult in your life? Do you believe that God will bring you out of that circumstance? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom continues his current series with part six of Ruth. So far, we've looked at Naomi's life in the book of Ruth. Her story reminds us that God brings difficult days into our lives. Sometimes it's his chastening for sin, as it was with Naomi. Often it's simply because you live in a fallen, cursed world that's subject to sin. But regardless, God can bring you through those times. And as you'll discover today, when Naomi thinks of her circumstances, her only explanation is God's irresistible, undeniable, sovereign power. Is that how you think of God in your current circumstance? Open your Bible now as we join Tom Pennington on The Word Unleashed. Notice in the curse itself, she says, Thus may the Lord do to me. She's calling for God to produce dire consequences on her personally if she doesn't keep these promises that she's making. Now, what is thus? We're not told exactly what thus is, what the consequences will be if she breaks these promises. There are a couple of possibilities. She may be saying, may I die a premature death. I mean, she's in context been speaking of Naomi's death. Maybe she's saying, may God take my life prematurely if I don't keep these promises. Or she may be saying, may God visit the curses he promised to bring onto his people onto me. In other words, she could be referencing the curses on disobedience found in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. May God bring plagues and fire and famine and war on me. A third possibility is that when she said these words, thus may the Lord do to me, she made some nonverbal gesture of what she was inviting God to do if she broke the promise. For example, in our culture, someone might draw their hand across their neck to mimic slitting the throat. Or they might use a finger pointed at the temple to indicate an imaginary pistol. We don't know exactly what she meant, but clearly, regardless, Ruth was calling on Yahweh to produce the direst consequences in her life if she broke these promises. And then she adds, I love this, and worse, and worse, I'm asking Yahweh to place upon me any curse he chooses if I fail to keep my word, and her assumption is it's going to be worse than the normal list of plagues and fire and famine and so forth. And what was it she was swearing an oath she wouldn't do? She would never allow anything but death to part her from Naomi. But notice there's an interesting little observation here. In verse 17, do you notice the words anything but are in italics? What that means is that the translators have added those words in their thinking for clarity. 
It's possible, however, that we should read it without those words. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse if death parts me and you. Ruth may be swearing that even in death, that is where her body is buried and in eternity, she will not be separated from Naomi. What I want you to see here is that Ruth, the Moabitess, the idolater, the worshiper of Chemosh, the demander of child sacrifice, has been genuinely and truly converted. She has been rescued by Israel's God. Think about how he accomplished this. It's an amazing providence. God even used the sin of Elimelech to reach into a foreign country and bring an idolater to himself. One he chose in eternity past. Listen, don't stop praying for that person in your life that you love and that isn't in Christ. You have no idea what God can do to accomplish his purpose in a life. Here he uses the most unthinkable of circumstances to bring this woman to himself. This is God seeking sinners and bringing them to himself just like he did with us. By the way, this was the reason. Illustrated in this story is the reason God chose Abraham and out of Abraham he made a nation. You see, God never intended that Israel would become the frozen chosen, living in isolation from their mission field. Instead, it's clear from their inception that God intended Israel to be his witness nation to the world. Look back at Exodus 19. Exodus 19. This is the the inception of the the nation's constitution. Verse 3, Moses went up to God and the Lord called him told to him from the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptian, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Why? Well, he goes on to say, I want you to obey my voice. I want you to keep my covenant. And here's why. You shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? It means you are priests representing me to the rest of the planet. You are my witness nation. That's what God was saying to Israel. Sadly, Israel largely failed to live up to this responsibility. There were small glimpses throughout Old Testament history when Israel fulfilled this mission, this evangelistic mission to some extent. And Gentiles came to worship Yahweh For example, there was Rahab in Joshua 2.11. Rahab said, Yahweh, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There's Naaman in 2 Kings 5.17. Let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth from Israel. For your servant will no longer offer burnt offering, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to Yahweh. There was Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel 7.37, who writes at the end of that magnificent celebration of God's sovereignty, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are true, and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. They're the Ninevites in Jonah 3.10. 
When God saw the Ninevites' deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, he saw the fruit of their repentance, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he'd bring upon them, and he did not do it. This was their mission, and in fits and starts, it was accomplished. But that mission, the mission of being God's witness nation to the world, has now passed from Israel to the church. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9. He says, you, church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. There it is, borrowing the same language. You are priests to God. You represent God to the nations, to the peoples, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Listen, do you understand that's why you're here? I've said this many times before as as it was poured into me. Everything else that we do on this planet, we can do better in heaven. Your worship will be much better in heaven. Your praise will be much better in heaven. And on and on it goes. But there's one thing that you can do here that you can't do in heaven. And that's be God's witness to the peoples around you. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. Don't lose sight of the mission. And you see this just a little bit in the story of Ruth. Notice verse 18, back in Ruth chapter 1. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined, she said no more to her. Naomi saw in Ruth's demeanor and heard in her voice her absolute determination In Hebrew, the text says, when she saw that she had strengthened herself, she ceased to speak to her. For the rest of the trip to Bethlehem, Naomi stopped trying to convince Ruth to return to Moab. So we've seen the spiritual restoration of God's child in Naomi. We've seen the spiritual salvation of God's enemy in Ruth. I want you to see thirdly, an interpretation of all of this, particularly from Naomi, the spiritual perception of God's chastening. The spiritual perception of God's chastening. Verse 19, so they both went until they came to Bethlehem. Writer doesn't tell us how far along they were on the journey from Moab to Bethlehem when the dialogue we just studied occurred, but, but he summarizes the rest of the journey in these words. They went until they came to Bethlehem. Now, the trip from the plains of Moab to Bethlehem was somewhere between 60 to 75 miles, depending on the route they took. Likely, they headed from Moab directly north, and then from there headed west, across the north side of the Dead Sea, and up through the Wadi Kilt, up to Jerusalem and to Bethlehem, which was just six miles out of Jerusalem. This would have been the probable journey that they would have occurred, the the route they would have taken. Now, for two women walking, this would have been somewhere between a seven to ten day journey. And it wasn't a pleasant journey. They started on the fields of Moab, on the plains of Moab, where undoubtedly they lived. Then they would have descended 4,500 feet from the plains of Moab to the Jordan Rift. This is the road they likely would have taken, not the road in the foreground, the road in the distance, the route they would have taken 
passed over this, this area. Then they would have made their way across the Jordan River at the north end of the Dead Sea, and then they would have started up the road from Jericho toward Jerusalem through the Judean hills, climbing back another 3,750 feet to Bethlehem. So down 4,500 feet to the Jordan Rift and then back up another 4,000 feet to Bethlehem. Verse 19 said, And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. When Naomi and Ruth had come to the town of Bethlehem, we're told that the entire city stirred. Now, it's possible at this point the men were in the fields gathering the barley harvest that's mentioned in verse 22. And so Ruth and Naomi entered the city, and all the women saw them and came to greet them. This is, by the way, what it would have looked like when they arrived. This is a view from the north side of Bethlehem, which is the direction they would have come looking down into where Bethlehem lies. The Hebrew word stirred here in this verse is an onomatopoetic word, a word that sounds like what it means. It's like the English word buzz. In fact, the Hebrew word is not too much dissimilar from the word hum. So the entire town of Bethlehem was humming about these two women. Remember, they're identified in chapter 1 as Ephrathites of Bethlehem. They were blue bloods, well-known, well-respected. And 10 years earlier, this respected family had left Bethlehem. Now, of that original family of four, only Naomi returns, and she returns with a young Moabite woman in tow. Again, try to imagine. Imagine your own response if a family that you knew and respected, a family of four, had moved away just 10 years ago. And the wife and mother returned alone, telling you that in those 10 years, she had lost her husband and both of her sons. I expect your household would be humming as well. Verse 19 says, and the women said, is this Naomi? The implication is they asked this question of each other. Their question could imply excitement at seeing Naomi again. Is this really Naomi back after all this time? We're so excited to see you. But likely it's more negative than that. It's more likely the difficult years have stamped themselves on Naomi's appearance so that she's hardly recognizable as the woman who left Bethlehem 10 years before. It's probably more like this. Could this really be the woman who left us just 10 years ago? Naomi overhears and she responds, And in what she says to these women, we get a glimpse of how she thought about what Yahweh had done in her life. Notice verse 20. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. Naomi means pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. That's no longer an appropriate name for me because of my circumstances. Instead, call me Mara, which means bitter. Why does she want her name changed? Verse 20 says, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. It's interesting because in this statement, Naomi doesn't use the personal name for God. Rather, she uses a title. The Hebrew word is Shaddai. It's often combined with the word for God, Elohim, and it's translated God Almighty. It occurs 48 times in the Old Testament. Clearly, it's an ancient title for God. It 
is referred to in Exodus chapter 6, verse 3, when God says, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God should I. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not, my, not make myself known to them. So this is an ancient title for God. The very first occurrence of this name in Scripture is in Genesis 17, 1, when Abram was, not, was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, I am God Shaddai. I am El Shaddai. Scholars have spilled a lot of ink about the etymology of this word, but frankly, its origins remain a mystery. Instead, we have to look at how the word is used to discern its meaning, and it's important in the context. Let me give you some references that help elucidate the meaning. There are a number of passages where this word is used where power seems to be the inherent use of it. Psalm 68, 14, the Almighty scattered the kings. Psalm 91, 1, we will abide in the shadow of Shaddai. Isaiah 13, 6, wail for the day of Yahweh is near. It will come as destruction from Shaddai. Joel 1.15, alas for the day, for the day of Yahweh is near, and it will come as destruction from Shaddai. Leon Morris says, from all this it seems that the thought of power attaches to the name. There are many passages where this is the most appropriate meaning, and very few, if any, where it's not acceptable. We should take this to be the force of Shaddai as a name of God. Now why is that important? When Naomi thinks of her circumstances, her only explanation is God's irresistible, sovereign power. The one who cannot be resisted, whose will cannot be thwarted, he is Shaddai. He is almighty. By the way, this is what makes our Lord's claim in Revelation 1.8 so extraordinary, because Jesus, our Lord, says, I am the almighty So Shaddai, the Almighty, notice she says, had dealt bitterly with her. Verse 21, I went out full, but Yahweh has brought me back empty. Literally, the text says this, catch the emphasis. The Hebrew text says, I full went out, but Yahweh empty has brought me back. Clearly full here does not mean with full stomachs and with all they needed. They wouldn't have left Israel for Moab. Instead, she means full in the sense of her family. She left with a husband and two sons and through them a secure future. And now she's returned without a husband or sons or food or even the money to buy food. Verse 21, why do you call me Naomi pleasant since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Notice, she says two things about what's happened to her. One, the the Lord has witness against me. This is legal language from the courtroom. She is the accused, and Yahweh has found her guilty of sin against him. And in light of her sin, the Almighty, Shaddai, has afflicted me. He has brought calamity, disaster upon me. By the way, the word afflicted is often used to describe the disasters related to the curses in the Mosaic Covenant. This is the language of divine chastening. It's like Job in Job 5.17. Do not despise the discipline of Shaddai. 
this is where she is. She is embracing the reality of the discipline that God has brought into her life. Now, in the last verse of this chapter, the writer recaps what has transpired in Act 1, Scene 2. Notice verse 22. So Naomi returned with Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law. She returned, and with her, Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. This recaps what's gone on in this section. The far country, and now the journey home. How do we apply this? Let me apply it in two ways. First of all, for us as believers. Naomi's story reminds us that God brings difficult days into our lives. Sometimes it is his chastening for our sin, as it was with Naomi. Often it's simply because we live in a fallen, cursed world that's subject to vanity, and God doesn't protect us from that, even though he loves us. But regardless, God can bring us through those times. Look at Psalm 30. Psalm 30. I love this psalm. David is rejoicing and thanking God for deliverance. He says in verse 4, Sing praise to Yahweh, all you godly ones. Give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night. It's temporary. But a shout of joy comes in the morning. Notice verse 11. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. This is our God. It may be that you're going through difficulty in your own life now. Listen, God will bring you out of that circumstance. It may be in this life, and that is my prayer for you. But if not in this life, he will bring you out. He will turn your weeping, your mourning into dancing. He will loose your sackcloth and gird you with gladness. This is our God. If you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord, Ruth's story has a lot to teach you. If you want to know the true God, he demands that you turn from your idols and that you put your complete confidence in him And in today's world, he demands that you come to him through his appointed one, the Messiah, his son. By the way, in a very real sense, that was true for Ruth as well. God rescued Ruth spiritually in anticipation of the Savior who would come, the very one who would ultimately be one of her descendants. In Matthew 1, she's listed in Jesus' genealogy. You see, Jesus bought the forgiveness that was the fruit of Naomi's repentance. Jesus bought the spiritual redemption that Ruth came to enjoy. And that's the only place your hope is found if you're not in Christ. Turn from your idols. Turn from those things that you've learned to worship other than God, your creator. And receive the offer of forgiveness in his son. This is the story of Ruth. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington on The Word Unleashed with part six of Ruth. Join us next time for part seven as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. Well, Tom, is there a danger in believing God will change your circumstances 
if perhaps you just believe and give enough? You know, it's a huge danger. Sadly, it's very common in the larger Christian world where prosperity is presented as the goal of salvation. There is a huge difference between believing that God is good and wise and sovereign and that he can work through all of our circumstances to produce our spiritual good and his glory versus believing that God is somehow bound to give us the best of everything in this life and that somehow he fails us if he doesn't. We're learning that God uses even the difficult circumstances of this life for the good of those that he loves, and we can trust him to work that out for his glory and our good. Thanks, Tom. And friend, in a world filled with great uncertainty, God's word and the promises it contains offer wonderful encouragement to believers in Jesus Christ. We pray that the ministry of the Word Unleashed is playing a prominent role to that effect, and we'd love to hear how that works in your life and personal walk with the Lord. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional radio series from The Word Unleashed. That's all at thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.